Good morning again. If you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 9. Psalm 9. This morning, our title is to rejoice in the Lord. You know, we are constantly faced with things that um, make us question, where's God? Or why is there so much evil? Or why are bad things happening, right? Um, But the truth of the matter is, is we live in a sin-stained world that is full of evil. And the result of the sin in the world the result of evil in the world is sin being rampant. Um, and it's easy for our nature to question God in those moments, but we do so wrongly um, because we forget that God is good. And what we have to remember is that God is ruling, that God is reigning, that God is executing righteous justice that God is leading um, graciously. And as we remember that, we also begin to remember that there is plenty to rejoice in, namely God Himself. It's easy for us to ignore all the many things that God is doing that we forget. Um, The fact that God is even sustaining us to be here right now, that God is allowing us to be here right now, that God has given us um, a beautiful place to live that God has provided and provided and provided even in the small common graces of everyday life. But the more we remember who God is, the more we remember the greatness of God, the more we should be led into the worship of God. He is very worthy of our praise. Um, Last week we looked at Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And so we looked at the majesty of God. We took a journey to see how great God truly is, the the power of God, the majesty of God, the might of God, the, the glories of God. And those things should lead us into never ending worship. In Philippians, Paul writes to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. And That is a big scope of Psalm 9. It is a longer psalm than we have really approached up to this point um, so far. But the main idea of this psalm is this, that we should rejoice in the Lord as He is both righteous ruler and gracious King. And so this morning as we work through Psalm 9, we're going to see ways in which and and reasons which we should rejoice in the Lord. But before we do that, I want to pray for us and pray for our time together and pray that God would be preparing us to hear from Him. So let's pray together. Our Father, again, we come to You now as we are gathered under Your Word, God, to just ask that Your Spirit would speak to us. God, whatever situation we may be facing in life, you are there. You are with us. And so, God, we pray that as we work through this text, that we would be driven to a place of rejoicing, 
because of who you are. God, we pray that you would speak to us, meeting us right where we are, regardless of the situation we are in in life. God, we come trusting that you have been preparing us to be here to hear from you. And now we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. God, that we would be transformed through the hearing of your word. That our lives would be radically changed by the good news of the gospel of Jesus. God, we pray that you would be made much of in our time together. You are good. And you are glorious. And you are worthy of all of our praise, all of our rejoicing. So now, Father, let us rejoice in you, in your word. May you speak to us the words that we need to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we begin to dive into Psalm 9, the very first thing we see is that it's a psalm written to the choir master, according to Muth Leben, a psalm of David. Now, the interesting thing is, that I'm, I'm just going to spend a brief minute here, but it's a psalm of David, so it's written by David, but it's actually written to the choir master. Some um, versions will say to the chief choir master, and that's actually meaning that he wrote this psalm to God himself. So oftentimes it would have been God referred to as the chief choir master. Um, and so it's, a, it's this psalm of praise that, that David has written um, as to, to rejoice in the Lord, to remember His goodness. And as we begin to move in to Psalm 9, it begins with a rejoicing in the Lord's righteousness. So verse 1 and 2, David writes, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So he's rejoicing in the Lord's wonderful works. And he starts in these first two verses, these four lines, giving four different um, proclamations of praise to who God is and to what God has done. So the very first line, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. And that really begins to set the stage for all of these verses. So he gives thanks to the Lord and then he says, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds or I will remember all the good things that you have done. And, and there's a lot of question on, on the timing um, of, of when this psalm was written. Some believe that it was actually written um, following the battle of David and Goliath um, where David is remembering God's victory through him to defeat Goliath. But um, we don't know that for sure. Uh, but what we do know is David is remembering the goodness of God. And if you remember, David went through quite a lot in his life. He faced many obstacles, many tasks, and God was extremely gracious. So he says, I will recount or I will remember all of your wonderful deeds. And he says, I will be glad and exult in you. Now that's a big one. It, it, it seems 
maybe one of the the most odd probably to us to be glad in someone else. But as we've learned time and time again, our calling as the people of God is to find joy, ultimate and, and total joy in Christ. We are to find joy in Him in even the hardest points of life. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And, and to think of where David is at this point, writing, re- recounting all of the goodness of God in his life, all the good deeds of God in his life, and to be able to say, I will be glad. And maybe we should just ask ourselves if we're glad in the Lord. And that might seem like such an insignificant thing, but it's the greatest. The Westminster Catechism asks right off the bat, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So in finding ultimate joy, we do so in giving God the most glory. Those two things are not at odds. They actually work together. I mean, I would probably say that most of us would want joy in our lives. That's what we want. We want to be happy. We want to find joy. But most times we want to find joy in all the wrong places, in all the wrong ways. We turn from God. We turn to other things to try to fill a void that only God can fill. We try to find joy in things that will not give lasting joy. They might give brief moments of joy, but they will end up leaving us feeling empty and void. But David says, I will be glad and exult in you. And notice what all of those things do is they lead him to singing. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. As um, a pastor, and I'm sure Byron would agree with this, there is not much more of a greater feeling than to be leading the people of God in worship and hearing singing. To hear the gladness expressed in voice. And and, and I know that there are a lot of people that don't sing for, for various reasons, but I'm, I'm kind of one of those people that says, you know, um, what do you expect to do in heaven? <laughs> I mean, we're there to praise the Lord. Um, you know, and I think we get so caught up in all of the things that heaven is told to offer and and we think we're going to go up there and just take it easy and 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 eat the, this giant feast and we're just going to relax but i think that our relaxing and our ultimate joy in heaven is going to be with eternity singing praises to the the glorious king of all and so what we find here is david is rejoicing in the lord he's worshiping with his whole heart. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, half heart is no heart. And, and how many times do we approach worship in that way? We might have woken up with a lot on our mind or a lot of struggles in life or a lot of things that we're battling and, and, and we go to church and 
you know, it, it might be for the right reason. It might be because we know we need to, to experience the presence of the Lord and we need to be encouraged by the body. But, but how many of those times are we going because we need to check that box? Um, it's the right thing to do. And we know we need to go because that's what Christians do is they go to church. But we come half-heartedly. We're not coming ready to worship the king. We're not coming ready to experience the greatness of God. So yes, it's true that half-heart is no heart. I also love what James Montgomery Boy says. He says, we do not praise God with our lips very much, if at all. And when we do, if we do, we praise Him half-heartedly. It is more often true that Christians complain of how God has been treating them, carry on excessively about their personal needs or desires, or simply gossip. How often do we come into the Lord's house with the wrong heart? We're not coming to worship. We're, we're coming for whatever reason. Or, or maybe we're coming so that we can receive a quote-unquote blessing. We're, we're knowing that if we don't go, then we're not going to receive a blessing from the Lord, so we need to check all those boxes so God can be good to us. I mean, it, it's not far-fetched to think that we have some jacked-up views when it comes to how God works and what's so scary about that is it's the complete opposite of living in grace. It's nothing but law. Where I have to check all of these boxes, I have to please the Lord so that He'll be pleased with me. But that is not how the gospel works at all. Because God is already altogether pleased with us in Christ if we have trusted in Jesus. So if you're here and you're a Christian and you're still trying to check boxes so that the Lord will be pleased with you, then I want to remind you to go back to the gospel and see it as it simply is. That Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And if we're going to come to worship wholeheartedly, then we have to understand that Jesus has already done for us what is necessary. And it's that that then propels us into worship. Right? Notice what David's saying. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Again, that O Most High is the name Elion, which literally is the, like a, a, the covenant name for God, the sovereign covenant God who has done all things, who is supreme over all things. So he is rejoicing in the fact that God is already moving regardless of what he does. So we worship God with our whole heart. And when we are rejoicing in God with our whole heart, we begin to tell of His wonderful works. We begin to be glad in Him and we rest in His goodness and we sing. Not only do we rejoice in the Lord's wonderful works, but we also rejoice in His defense against enemies. Look at verses 3 and following. When I look at your heaven, oh, back, wrong chapter, back down. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have set on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Folks, we should find great comfort 
in knowing that God doesn't forget His people. He defends versus enemies. Anything that you can face in life, God is greater. There's nothing that can rise up that's going to threaten the rule and the reign of Almighty God. I'm sure you've probably heard people say something like this, or maybe you, um, you've been guilty of saying it yourself without even thinking about what it means, but we have this tendency to say this saying that God is on my side. And while that's not altogether wrong, it's the mindset behind it, right? If, all right, let's, let's break this down. Say that we are in a, we're all collectively in a large army. Not, not battle in modern terms, but like old school where you line up and everybody just goes and they have their different regiments and they, they charge at their, their way. And you had this really known, powerful leader. And then you had this other guy leading this other regiment who was good, but eh, not, not, you know, not the most well-known for winning all the time. Which one would you want to follow? The one who you don't really know if he's going to lead well, or the one that you know won't lose? See, when we say that God is on our side, what we're doing is we're trying to put God on our team instead of realizing that we should be doing everything to make sure that we're on His side. Striving for holiness, living under grace. So you got to, again, be careful not to fall on the side of the law here. We're not checking boxes to be on His side, but what we're doing is we're resting in the grace of God and we're striving for holiness trying to, Romans 12, live a life of sacrificial worship to make Him honored and glorified as He should be to be on His side. Why? Because He is the righteous ruler, He is the righteous judge, and He does so justly. He is great. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. And you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their names forever and ever. There is no enemy that can come against the power and might of God. We also should rejoice in the victory of the Lord. Verse 6 and following, it says, The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. We can go throughout history and see how God uses these powerful individuals who may not be the most godly, to accomplish his task. And we can also see throughout history where you have people who think they are untouchable that God makes foolish. Nebuchadnezzar is one who comes to mind. He was the most powerful ruler in the world and he refused to worship God and so God literally turned him to an animal (laughs) to graze for several years. And then at the end of that, he recognized God is much greater than I. See, because He is the righteous ruler, we're assured His victory because in Jesus, God has defeated sin and death once and for all. 
God rules righteously and he reigns victoriously. And knowing that he sovereignly rules and he sovereignly reigns should lead us to rejoice in who he is. But not only does should we rejoice in the Lord's righteousness, but we should also rejoice in the Lord's graciousness. Verses 9 and 10, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So He is our refuge. It's a beautiful thing if, if probably most of you are looking at the ESV um, and that's what's on the screen. But in, in depending on what version you read, it'll say the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a refuge in times of struggle, or vice versa. But the reality is, is that stronghold in verse 9, for both times it's mentioned, is actually the same word could be used as refuge as well. It's the same Hebrew word. And what it literally means is a high place. So it's a place of maximum security and the strongest defense. You get to the highest point and it is almost impossible to overtake. So God is our refuge in those moments. And the beautiful thing about these verses here is that not only is God a righteous judge, but He cares deeply for the oppressed as well. It's completely ludicrous to think that God only cares for those who can care for themselves. The Lord is a stronghold for those who are weak, a stronghold, a refuge in times of trouble. The good news is for us is that's us. When it comes to the sin in our life, we need the Lord. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't bring salvation to our own lives. Only God can do that. By trusting in the work of Christ, then we find salvation. But how often do we put ourselves on a pedestal thinking that we are good enough? That if we just do X, then we'll receive God's graciousness. But the Lord is a refuge for those who are weak. And to those who know your name, they put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. See, the good news is, is that Christians have a refuge in the Lord. Now, notice I said Christians have a refuge in the Lord. Because if you don't know Christ, then you don't understand that, that Christ is your stronghold. That Christ is your refuge. You don't understand that when you're going through trouble that there is a rock to stand on. But for those who have trusted in Christ, the Lord is our refuge. Even in times of trouble, when, when all of the world seems to be coming down upon us, when we feel abandoned or when we feel forsaken, we can find comfort in knowing that He never leaves us or forsakes us. You want to know true peace? Then you need to know Christ. I couldn't imagine walking through life and the struggles of life without knowing that God is there. To know that He is the one who brings 
a peace that passes all understanding. To know that he is a high priest that can sympathize with us because of what he has given and sacrificed in himself. To know. To know that he calls us to cast our burdens on him. The Lord is truly a refuge and a stronghold. And the thing is, is how often do we, do we question God when we seem distant from Him or when He seems distant from us, thinking that He has left us when the reality is, is we've taken our eyes off of Him and we're no longer pursuing Him. He never leaves. If Allison was in here, she would trip out on this, but when I was coming up, I used to... Uh, my youth pastor and my pastor used to have this little analogy they would use, and there's this, and some of you have heard me say it before, but one day this old couple, they're riding down the road in his pickup, and they're just going down the road, and he's driving, and she's sitting on the passenger side, and she says, you remember, remember the days when I used to sit right here in the middle? And he just turns over, and he says, I ain't moved. That's kind of how the relationship between God and us is. He never moves. He never leaves. But we quickly move away. We're drawn away by shiny things. But the Lord never leaves and He never forsakes. He is truly a refuge for us. Notice what David does in these next two verses, 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. We rejoice because God remembers his people. Again, we should find great comfort in knowing that he does not forget. Again, he doesn't leave. He doesn't move. And God's people should respond the same way David does rightly in his graciousness by singing praises to his name. David is rejoicing that God has remembered. David is rejoicing that God has never left him, that he has never forsaken him, that he knows that God is always near. And he's also extremely merciful. Verse 13 and 14, David writes, Be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all of your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. David is crying out for God to remember him in, in the events that, that he is in the midst of. He's crying out to God for mercy. God, be merciful. Save me. Now the thing is, is that David is asking God to save him from this sticky situation, which is very relatable, right? Probably every day we cry out to God to, to deliver us from something, from some type of situation. But where it gets extremely different for us, in a lot of cases, I'm not saying every case, because, you know, sometimes we, we actually get it right, but... But if you're like me, you, you have more times than not where you get it wrong. But David is not asking God to save him 
for his benefit. David is asking God to save him for God's benefit. God, if you save me from this, I can can rejoice in the glorious way that you have brought me from this. So in our life, are we asking God constantly for things so that we can benefit? Or are we asking God to save? Are we asking God to deliver? Are we asking God to heal? Are we asking God to forgive so that we can then turn around to display the glories of God in working through us? There's a big difference there. That quote read earlier, how often is it that we're complaining about how God is treating us or we're carrying on about our personal needs or desires or we're simply gossiping to God rather than crying out to God and asking Him to glorify Himself through our lives. So David sings his praise. He's crying out for God to be gracious so that in the end he can rejoice in salvation. Another Spurgeon quote for you. He says, It is a good thing for the melancholy to become a Christian. It is an unfortunate thing for the Christian to become melancholy. If there is any man in the world that has a right to have a bright, clear face and flashing eye, it is the man whose sins are forgiven him and who is saved with God's salvation. If we are truly people who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who have been redeemed by the work of Christ, there is no place in our lives for stagnation. There is no place in our lives for just ho-hum living. Why? Because of how good God has been. Because if we understand that we're saved, then we also understand that how much we needed saving. We begin to see the depths of what our sin was and then we can rejoice in the greatness of God. And then Romans 5, 8 truly means a lot to us. Even more, it means a lot when we read it, but then when we understand the depth of our sin and the the nastiness and vile nature of who we are and that yet knowing that God still shows His love and dies for us even despite who we are, then we rejoice all the more in how great He has been. And that doesn't lead to, like Spurgeon says, a melancholy life. It leads to rejoicing. So up to this point, through these 14 verses, we have rejoicing that we need to rejoice in the Lord's righteousness and His wonderful works, His defense versus enemies and His victory and and His graciousness and His refuge and Him remembering us and not forgetting and His mercy. And now we come to the third main point in that we should rejoice in the Lord's justice. Look at verse 15 and following. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higion, Selah, which are, Higion is a, um, a thought to be a musical term, and Selah is a moment of pause to, to reflect. And then he goes in to verse 17, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. 
So we rejoice in the Lord's justice and we rejoice in the Lord's judgment. Here's the thing, that when we watch the news or we listen to stories or we scroll through our social media, every moment of every day we're faced with bad news. Evil people doing evil things, right? And, and we want to question, where is God in that? But here's the, the reality and the truth for us. That even in the plans of the wicked, as vile as they may be, God is serving His purpose sovereignly. I mentioned a while ago the, with Nebuchadnezzar, but there are time and time again in Scripture where God uses the wicked to bring about the good. And the truth is, is that God sovereignly uses evil for good. Think about the story of Joseph, right? Joseph is the youngest of many brothers. They are extremely jealous of him um, because Jacob loves him. He loves him greatly. Um, But his brothers are completely jealous of Joseph and they conspire this plan to get rid of him. They dig this pit, they put him in a pit, and they plan to sell him off. Um, They do, and they then take his coat, and they cover it in animal blood, and they make it seem that um, Joseph was killed by a wild animal, and his father weeps, and he's broken. Um, But when reality, he's not dead. He was sold into slavery, but then he finds favor um, in the house of... Potiphar, and he begins to be moved up into a very powerful place until there becomes a famine and his brothers wind up coming back to beg for food and to beg for mercy because there's no food left and they've been wise enough through the Lord's leading in Joseph to set food aside and prepare and he tells them what God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Every moment of every day, there are wicked and vile things happening that God uses for good. And we might not always be able to see the immediate effect of that. But what we do is we have faith in who God is and what God is doing and we trust in the Lord's leading because He has promised in Romans 8 that He is working all things together for good. All things. Not some things, not most things, but all things. Even the things that make us question how is God using this or how will God use this, He is. Again, verses 17 and 18, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. What we see here is this drastic difference between those who forget God and those who are trusting in God. Right? Verse 17, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For those who are turning to God, justice and judgment will come. But for those who are trusting in God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. And what this really does for us is it makes us remember how great God has been in salvation. I've heard a lot of people say you want to not remember your sins. You don't want to remember who you were. You just want to focus on who you are now. But I just, I I don't buy that. I I want to remember the sin in my life. I want to remember the greatness of God in saving me. I want to know who I was and and who I am now only because of the work of God. Because that leads me into worship. It leads me into trusting even more the plans of God. 
The wicked return to Sheol. That means they're separated from God. You know, we have this tendency in our culture to, to try to put pictures and, and um, tangible things into what we perceive of heaven and hell. Um, I mean, when you hear somebody preaching about hell, it's, you know, fire and brimstone and weeping and gnashing of teeth and all of these things. But th- those are the, not the things that make hell horrible. The thing that makes hell horrible is that God is not there. There is no common grace anymore. All it is is experiencing the wrath of God poured out on our sin for eternity. But he goes on, he says, but those, the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. That means the humble, the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. To understand that I need, I mean, Jesus said what? I didn't come to heal the healthy, but I came for the sick. In other words, I came for those who knew they needed rescuing. And if you're walking around every day in your pride thinking that you don't need the grace of God, you really fall into more of verse 17. But if you walk around knowing that without Christ that you are nothing in 18... Verse 18 should resonate with you greatly. And I would highly, highly encourage those of you who are thinking that you can exist without the grace of God in your life to get humbled up really quick. Because we never know when our time will be up. And when it is up, that's it. There is no second chance at that point. And there's going to be a lot of people who stand before God at the very end of their existence. They're going to beg for more time. They're going to beg for God's mercy. But they're going to be returning to Sheol. If you trust in Christ, then you can escape that. So not only do we rejoice in the Lord's righteousness and rejoice in the Lord's graciousness and rejoice in the Lord's justice and His judgment, but we also rejoice in the zeal that God has for His own glory. Look at verse 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord, and let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Again, belief in God's sovereignty doesn't lead to stagnation. God is zealous for His own glory. And for the people of God, we need to understand this. And this is, again, talking about that fine line between law and grace. Because you can have two extremes, right? To where you can be extremely law-bound, where you have to check all the boxes, you have to fulfill all these duties, and 
you know, wear your hair a certain way or not your hair a certain way or you have to dress a certain way using certain materials and you have to, you know, um, you know, not do these things and you can't do this or you can't do that so that God would be pleased about your, with your obedience. But, but that's not understanding the gospel at all. Because what you're trying to do at that point is you're trying to work your way into heaven. You're trying to work your way into salvation. And we can't do that. Only Christ can save, right? But then you have the other extreme where you go overly gracious and you just live your life however the mess you want to live it and you just think, okay, well, God's got this. I'm good. But according to Romans, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, right? So you have both of those extremes and then you have the middle ground where you understand grace and you understand the gift of the law and we live in obedience to Christ because of the goodness of God in His grace. And so we find ourselves on the middle ground living for the glory of God, which is also what James speaks about in James in the book of James when he says faith without works is dead. He's not saying that our faith is determined by our works, but he's saying that our faith leads to work. So our salvation is not based on what we have done. It's based on what Christ has done, but we work it out because of our rejoicing in who God is and what God has done for us. And there's a very fine line there, and if we catch the wrong side of it, then we're flirting with major issues. But for the people of God, we should understand that because of what God has done for us, we then work. Right? Ephesians 2. If y'all don't have Ephesians 2 verses 8 through... Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 memorized now as much as we say it in here. Then I don't know it. But by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of who? Jesus. So that we can't boast about it. And then he goes on in verse 10. He says, and we are created as his workmanship, created by him for good works, which he's already prepared beforehand. So, in other words, God has saved us for him. And He has created us for good works, which He has prepared. So everything that God has called us to, He has prepared. So we should rest completely in the fact that God is zealous for His own glory. He's not calling us into a, a great unknown. It might be unknown to us, but it's not unknown to Him. He's not calling us into something that is going to lead Him to be like, Oops, didn't see that coming. That's not the case. When God called Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and their friends to go to Ecuador, He knew what they were walking into. He knew that all of those men would be slaughtered for the good news of Christ. And even while people might question, well, it, man, why would God allow, why would God do that? Because one of the greatest revivals has happened because of that death. She stayed and she proclaimed the goodness of God and people met Jesus. Even the men who were part of that attack. God is always working. And we should rest in the fact that He is always working. Now, again, we should be rejoicing in the fact that God is zealous for His own glory. We should rejoice in the fact that God is always fighting for His glory. But what that doesn't mean is that we should find joy when He enacts judgment on people, whether or not they deserve it. Because our 
calling as the people of God is to be like Christ, who desired all to come to faith. And we know, unfortunately, all will not, but that doesn't mean we don't want that. Our hearts should break when people don't live for the glory of God. Our hearts should be ripped when people are rejecting who God is and what God offers in Jesus. Simply put, our desire should be for all to be saved. And we see a glimpse of that in David's prayer. That for those who reject, that they would come to faith and they would see God's passion for His own glory. Knowing that God is this zealous for His own glory doesn't mean that He's self-centered, and it shouldn't lead us to think that He is egotistical, but it should lead us to rejoicing that He cares that much about His own glory, that He would give His only Son to destroy sin and death. And here's the truth for us, and kind of a question to kind of get the wheels turning a little bit. If God is so passionate about His own glory, how much more should we be zealously living for Him? Because everything you face in life, the good and the bad, should all lead to rejoicing in the Lord. So when you begin to ask, well, where is God or or why is this happening? Know that He is there. There are no clocking out for breaks. He never leaves. He never forsakes. He never abandons. When you feel abandoned, you can know that He is right there with you as the righteous ruler. And He's reigning in perfect justice. never leaves. He's a gracious king who loves his people greatly. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to think much on who Christ is and what Christ has done. We have a tendency to Make God small in our culture. Don't be guilty of that. Don't be afraid to think great of God because He is great and He is greatly to be praised. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in the truth of knowing that You are glorious that you are righteous, that you are gracious, that you are a righteous judge, and that you do all things for your glory and for the good of your people. So God, we ask today that your word has spoken to us, God, that it has penetrated into the very depths of our souls so that we may rest in you. And for those here who have never trusted in Jesus, God, I pray that you grip their hearts, that they would cry out for repentance, knowing that salvation doesn't come by what they do, but it's resting only 
in the work of Jesus. God, I pray that you set us ablaze as we think great thoughts of who you are. God, we ask that you would meet us here today. Glorify yourself. In Christ's name we pray.